new type of insulation coming out of Switzerland. That's you know, like, of course they're good at insulation. It's cold there. Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Paul. What's up? We got a third voice this week. We got a guest episode. So thank you to everyone for coming back for another hang in the laboratory. And thank you to, to Paul for coming by to be our guest. And also, special thanks to all of our supporters who throw us as little as a buck an episode to keep this thing going. If you want to jump in over there, go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. What's up, guys? This is our so this is our uh, so Paul is the CEO of Nori. We'll uh, uh, put we've this is we had uh, Christoph from Nori on before to talk about uh, reversing climate change. Honestly, yeah, is is is, is the that's the, the goal. mission, right? <laughs> uh, that's a great episode. So we'll we'll put it in the show notes for sure. But to start, uh, you're we're like climbing our way up the chain. We got CEO now. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, man? <laughs> you upgraded. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. It's exciting to talk about this. We've come a long way since the last time you talked to Christoph. Yeah, let's... Uh, so what... Uh, I know you guys did the token sale piece, the Republic, which I think we talked about a little bit with Christoph mm -hmm. at the time, but just uh, sort of more broadly, like, you know, how do you... How's, how's it going <laughs> in terms of the mission, oh. right? Well... <laughs> Um, so let me, let me back up a little bit and just explain that Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. What we're trying to do is, uh, well, like you said, we, we want, we want to create a way to reverse climate change. And if we kind of back that up and take a more like analytical look at it, climate change is caused by too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's really simple. Um, and, and if we look at the uh, amount of carbon dioxide that's up there, I, we, we take the approach of thinking, can we figure out ways to just pull that back out and put it back in the earth somehow so that we just make the whole problem as if it never happened at all? And when looking at the broad spectrum of different approaches that can actually pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, they exist. There are ecological methods, there are technological methods, and there are um, methods that haven't even been invented yet, but they exist and we have the tools to do this, but they're not happening at any large enough scale. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve at Nori. We're trying to make it very, very simple for people or companies or governments, whoever, who want to pay for removing CO2 from the atmosphere. We're trying to build the financial infrastructure that makes that really straightforward and easy for them to do so. I would say the digitally native, you know, financial infrastructure, right? I mean, yes. the, <laughs> the thing that's unique here is uh, like, I, I know I brought this up a bunch of times with Christoph, but like, you know, carbon credits are a thing mm -hmm. and you can get a tax break for purchasing them in order to offset the carbon that your business puts into the environment. Yeah. Like there's not a lot of not too much reinventing of the wheel is happening here other than there are some really interesting technologies that have popped up for the, the, the sort of how do we run a digitally native financial and economic system. And that's like, feels like it's so far down the rabbit hole so fast. I don't even know what to. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that, that is a huge part of it because we're trying to build a commodity market 
for carbon dioxide in the, the financial side of things. But yes, carbon credits do exist, but they almost always focus just on what's called carbon avoidance. So they're avoiding future emissions. They're saying, I'm doing some sort of thing which is going to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases that I emit in the future. And that's different than actually drawing it out of the atmosphere and putting it back in the ground. Yeah, the the difference there, as I understand it, I've listened to a couple episodes, I think, from your podcast, too. Uh, that I really enjoyed, although it's such a complicated space, I'm, I always get things mixed up a little bit. But um, a lot of a lot of the mechanisms there that are are designed into the policy are the idea of kind of forced ramp down of carbon emissions, which, like you yeah. said, is is really dictating how those businesses uh, operate. It's much more of like a an effective policy on hey, do this this way, as opposed to economic incentive. Yeah, there is definitely a lot of that. Um, And there is a lot of just kind of, I don't know how to put it, but a lot of efficiency lost in the way that those markets have been designed. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I I stand back and look at those and say, yes, it's it's been really valuable uh, to have the efforts that mm-hmm. have gone into ever since the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 um, that have gone into like the clean development mechanism and so on. But those markets were set up by bureaucrats and scientists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're not set up in, uh, and they're, they're artificially constructed in that right. way. They, they weren't um, coming from a first principles approach of how do we develop these so that all of the different parties can make a profit while creating new incentive structures for better and more carbon related activities. And that's that that's like a totally different approach that we're trying to take here. So where where does what you're working on start to diverge from those those concepts that have been tested in the past? The the big difference is that we are focused exclusively on carbon removal. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. only types of projects that could uh, sell what, what we're calling carbon removal certificates mm-hmm. or a CRC. The only types of projects that can sell in our market are ones that have uh, removed CO2 from the atmosphere and stored it somewhere. Um, and think about it this way, like carbon di- and Christoph might have used this analogy in the mm-hmm. last episode, but I'll repeat it. Carbon dioxide is like a garbage problem. Mm-hmm. We've been for decades or over a century just throwing garbage out on the streets. And most of the efforts that people are taking today at the like international policy level are saying, let's just throw out less garbage. <laughs> That'll be okay, right? And and that's just not true at all. What we need to do is collect our garbage and store it mm-hmm. somewhere. And and if you think of it like garbage, think of it in uh compare it to actual garbage, like in in our society, no one is advocating that we should live in a garbage-free society. Mm-hmm. Instead, we all agree to collectively pay for the collection of it and store it responsibly, and we reuse or recycle what we can. Mm-hmm. So we should do the same with carbon. Right. And, and and our hope then, too, is that that helps remove a lot of the uh, moral arguments that exist around climate change and environmentalism. If, if we're just treating it like a like a garbage it's just if you emit a ton of co2 you should pay for cleaning up that time right. that's it it's it's very simple it doesn't have to be um like evil malicious <laughs> oil and right. gas company uh corporate barons like trying to destroy the world right. like that's that's not reality it's just uh 
Yeah, it's a cha- it's a challenging topic because we uh, we effectively over the last probably thirty or forty years removed a lot of what you can see in gaseous pollution, uh, the mm-hmm. the the soot and the darkness in the sky and the change in the sunset color. We've cleaned a lot of that up, but we've yeah, it was easy to stuff. sell the smog cloud yeah. in Los Angeles in the seventies, right? That looked right. dirty. <laughs> so so a good distinction I think then is to say that uh, carbon credits are a way to incentivize companies to produce less of this pollution to put less trash out uh, and to kind of create an economy around where it costs money and increasingly more money over time to pollute or to and pollute is almost like a judgmental word I want to stay away from here to, to yeah. do what they do and not take care of the garbage they put out. Whereas you, Nori, is very specifically focused on, hey, the trash that's already been put out there, we're trying to figure out how to clean it up and incentivize that. Is that a good... Yep, that's cool. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the part of the analogy that just gets funny because because it's you know gaseous, like there's a, a smell to dealt it problem. You know, like <laughs> it's very clear if your neighbors just throwing their trash bags in their driveway and yeah. making it someone else's problem. Like with gas, part of the thing that needs to happen is we all just have to go. It's everyone's fault. Stop talking about that. Mm-hmm. How do we get it out though? Like people have to have a responsibility to pick up other people's trash, which is just a funny, yeah, in dynamic shift that I think is harder to sell because uh, people are selfish, you know. <laughs> That's absolutely so. true, and we're trying to build our market with an understanding that people are selfish. So how do we take advantage mm. of that instead of trying to fight human nature? How can we utilize it in a way that produces this? positive sum social result that we want to see and uh, can also help people create new wealth and new value along the way. Like if we could do all of that and at the same time clean up climate change, wouldn't Mm -hmm. that be the best of all worlds? That would be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So it's uh, international policymakers don't don't think about it that way. Um, They think about it in a very punitive sense. Um, and, and when you look at the sorts of discussions that they've had at the, um, the UN level, like the, the conference of the parties cop, um, so like the Paris agreement in 2015, that was one of the Mm -hmm. cop meetings and they do this every year and they, uh, the international countries all meet and they discuss how they're going to deal with some pretty important questions like, um, climate equity, uh, or, or justice around the fact that the developed world has, we we've, uh, reached our levels of luxury and wealth, uh, because we've used a lot mm-hmm. of energy to do so. And we've put a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in the process. And so should the now developing countries have the same privilege or now that we're all starting to take climate change seriously, do we stop them from going through that large scale energy transition? And, and that is a mm-hmm. deeply complicated question um, uh, to which there is no right answer. Um, but I think that you can almost not sidestep the question, but uh, come up with a, a better mutually acceptable mm-hmm. solution by focusing instead on, okay, what if carbon wasn't bad? What mm-hmm. if we could just innovate our way around this so that they have the ability to go through their transition, use energy to do so, and lift people out of poverty and improve the lives of humans uh, everywhere? 
and at the same time start taking care of this global carbon cycle so that we all have a beneficial um, positive environmental future and um, and I just don't hear enough people talking about that and that's really what we're trying to put forward into the global conversation yeah that's we uh, Brian mentioned the podcast quickly and I realized that I didn't say up front that you are also the host of the Nori podcast yeah it's called uh, uh, reversing climate change and there's another one you just mentioned yeah and we just launched a new show um that's called carbon removal newsroom so the reversing climate change podcast um is a uh, longer form usually about 45 minutes or so and uh we interview different guests uh, who are people like farmers and ranchers who are sequestering carbon in their soil or uh, academic researchers who have been working on different methods of carbon removal, um, sustainability officers at companies who are trying to offset their emissions, just kind of all over people who are working in this ecosystem that we're creating. And then Carbon Removal Newsroom is brand new. We just launched that uh, last week in the middle of February. And it's a short form 10 minute podcast where we we interview different people. Uh, sometimes it's uh, kind of some of the employees at Nori and sometimes it's people outside. But we're talking about latest current events that are happening mm. in the world of carbon removal. Very cool. Uh, and I think what I appreciate, with uh, I haven't listened to the new one, but the other one. Uh, you know, the, by making it an engineering problem, you're able to take it out of the doom and gloom sort of like, it's easy to slide into the sort of cynical difficulty of the problem Yeah. instead of looking at the opportunity of like the design surface hmm. and the cool stuff that we can do with it and the wealth there is to grab yeah. by doing that. Yeah. And, and ultimately it, it I, I, it's the thing I got <laughs> to work on that feels like a moonshot, yeah. you know, like yes. it's in that territory of like, okay, we have yeah. only so much that's time. That's where the conversation's going now. 10 too, years, nice. we will go to the nice moon, to find right? Here. Yeah, what, what Adam just said, and we were like, like you mentioned, we were talking about this beforehand, but uh, you're, you've hit the message that really has resonated for me too, right? Because this, uh, this, this has been an interesting uh, journey for me over the last probably three years now, really getting interested in uh, what's going on with climate. Um, and then kind of a period of actually realizing I didn't really know what was going on. I, I mixed up a lot of stuff, right? I mixed up like general pollution mm -hmm. and extinction and ocean, ocean acidification. Like it's all connected when you really get down to it. But like the yeah. core, one of the core issues here and the thing that really needs to be addressed, what Nori's working on is just carbon, just carbon going into atmosphere and the, the chemical reactions. And yeah. when I, when I uh, finally wrapped my head around the actual simple, not simple, but the idea that it's just this atom and the chemicals that are being produced and how it how it moves around our atmosphere and around our planet. I was overwhelmed at the scale all of a sudden. I was like, wow, this is like a simple high school chemistry experiment, but it's the entire, it's our entire existence, our, our whole planet, our whole atmosphere, all of our oceans. Um, and that put me in the doom and gloom. But then the reversal yeah. of wait, but now we can start to look at it as a real opportunity to invest in technology and to retrofit the planet in a really, really creative way with all of this new knowledge that's not based yeah. on uh, electricity generation from 200 years ago when we first started implementing it. So, 
there's a um, scientist, I think he's an astrobiologist, um, named David Grinspoon, who we had on our Reversing <clears throat> Climate Change podcast um, over the, I think in like December or so. And he has a book that's uh, called Earth in Human Hands. And the the main idea of it is that we're we're living in the Anthropocene now. So when talking about like the geological eras of time, um, there, there's been a lot of debate in the scientific community, but um, I, I feel pretty confident that we're in the Anthropocene, meaning anthro, like man, human. We're living in an era where what is happening geologically mm-hmm. is defined by human activity. And that what that really brings us to the, uh, a potential conclusion of is that no matter what, even if um, people didn't think that climate change or global warming was a particular issue, like it doesn't matter. We have to become stewards for the earth. We have to manage the carbon cycle. We have to build ways to do that or, or we cannot possibly mm-hmm. survive in the way that we're used to going forward. And when it comes to carbon and the like renewables transition and decarbonization and so on, that also it matters very much, but also in some ways it doesn't matter because even if we turned off all of our emissions tomorrow everywhere, mm-hmm. we're still screwed. <laughs> There's still way too much uh, greenhouse gas up in the atmosphere. So we have to pull it right. out. We have to figure out ways to do this. There is no uh, question about that. But but like you said, that that's just an opportunity. Uh, and for people who come at it from an engineering perspective then (laughs) it's a fun challenge like we've got this we've got this awesome moonshot that's going to be the defining issue of our lifetimes yeah there's Uh, a there's a certain thrill to it when you look at it from that direction where it is it's like a comic book superhero saving the world which is how i think a lot of people uh connect with people like elon musk right we there's a recognition that not only is i mean Mm -hmm. he's running great businesses and he's like a business mogul but people who also see him for trying to make a difference where things are really important which is one of his core messages when you ask him why he does stuff there there's a fun there's like a fun adventure component to it um and and this is like the adventure of our lives (laughs) it it really is i grew up reading lots and lots of science fiction and that was like the plot of many of the stories that i uh um, were foundational for me. You were talking about the, uh, you know, Kyoto and like UN level things. Like it's an interesting experience that I think you and I both probably share trying, like doing a startup at the edge of when people say, well, like how big a problem is it? You can immediately cite the largest like governing body in the world's, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the greatest <laughs> effort to cooperate amongst humans that has yeah. ever existed. They're like, yo, this is on our list of 16 most important things. Uh-huh. And it's so, it's so big and so global and so like of the time that I feel like that's almost laughed at when you go, when you go, oh yeah, well, we're chasing United Nations sustainable development goal number 16. <laughs> right. Access to justice. Well, People it's funny when, go, yeah. When, uh... It's like, no. When I it's hear a really important thing. big international <laughs> governing bodies like that, uh, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, well, everyone's already, it's getting taken care of, <laughs> right? Um, which actually is, uh-huh. is probably the opposite of all of those things, right? It means it's they're the things that are the least, they're being addressed the least for the, the size of the issue. Um, and so, yeah, uh, right. That's how they've gotten to be such big issues. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I got started in the, in this in 2015, I was um, my background's in software and computer engineering and stuff like that, and I had been reading an article in some magazine about how climate scientists were becoming very mm. depressed because <laughs> no one was listening to them. And that made me very curious to kind of think about, well, okay, th- this is, this is a big deal. And they're like, people aren't addressing this at a pace that seems necessary. And why isn't anyone <laughs> trying to just solve the whole damn thing? And, and if, can we find a way to like create value so that but like actually pulling co2 out is valuable for people and that led me to researching about carbon removal and what i found at the time in 2015 was that it was tiny like that community of people working in that space was very 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 small and it was not difficult Hmm. to actually meet everyone over the next year or two um everyone important in that space and it's growing and it's getting much bigger. Um, but this uh, concept of, or, or like what you were saying about like, oh, surely there are people hmm. working on it. Like turns out, no, there really weren't. And and there there are some good reasons for that. One of them is um, people always bring up the moral hazard uh, argument around carbon removal, which is if you, uh, if you come up with ways to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, then you're going to get rid of the incentive <laughs> that the uh that industry has to actually decarbonize and like i like i was just saying (laughs) earlier like well it doesn't matter it's too late we 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 can't we can't just turn it off uh and and hope that everything will get better um but i also think that there that this is important like uh people still need to fly uh, around the world or around the country to visit people um we still need to uh produce energy we still need to help these developing countries mm-hmm. move beyond like wood burning stoves uh all of these things uh that continue these amazing trends that have been happening over the last 30 40 years that have lifted like right. m- almost everyone out of extreme poverty uh so yeah and it's in- like, it's interesting when this? you uh frame things in non-judgmental ways especially the idea of co2 and not making it an enemy right because it's it's actually an extraordinarily important part of Mm -hmm. the world right the carbon cycle is something we learn about in in like elementary school in biology class and i was just discussing this with with a buddy that i get together with periodically to just kind of look at technology the other day and there is there's like a baseline of co2 recycling that the world is just the planet just does and we can we're realizing that yeah. we're having a dramatic effect on that baseline. Uh, we can potentially augment it dramatically with technology. And then, like you said, that's a good thing, because then these things that we think of as bad, like burning coal, they're only bad because we're exceeding that baseline that the planet can recycle. If we can change that number, then we can still do yes. things. And there are obviously other reasons why coal isn't necessarily a good direction to continue. But it's not about. Right. And this is a big part of what I think stresses people when when you talk about it in the environment. It's not about stopping our way of life. It's not about reverting to like an agrarian society where we're all living on self-sustainable farms. That's not Mm -hmm. really that's not a solution that the cat's out of the bag. Right. We live in cities. Uh, So we've got to find ways to uh, we probably will have to change a lot of things. And maybe there'll even be a transition period where stuff's very different. But the point is technology has made the world this really interesting, uh, wealthy place for so many people. And hopefully it can continue to do that. We just need to solve this problem uh, on the way there. 
And let's let's just figure out how to turn it into an engineering problem, because if yeah. we can do that, then then we can solve it. Because uh, I, I was telling you this before we started recording, like we're, totally. we're humans, we can That's build cool anything. Attitude. So the reason I'm optimistic about climate change in general is that when in the past humanity has been faced with large, uh, big problems, mm-hmm. we solve them every time. So hmm. we're I would hope that we'll, we'll keep doing so because we have a fantastic incentive, <laughs> which is to keep on living and, 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 right. and to keep on living the way that we want to, right. because we have more and more choice in that every day. So I, I feel very confident that this is a problem that will get solved this century. Right. Um, it's just that we have a lot of work ahead of ourselves. So let's talk about what, like the extent to which the problem is an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, people have heard stats about the concentration of carbon in the environment and stuff. We don't need to talk about the part where it's like, well, here's the impact it has on the planet, which I think is what everybody thinks about with climate change. Mm -hmm. But there's kind of this uh, perspective shift that I think uh, Brian and I got to in our conversations about it, where like climate change is just changing the environment around you right? Like running your air condition is climate change. Air conditioning yeah. is you changing the climate inside of your house. You know, and it takes energy mm-hmm. to do that, but everybody wants it. And, you know, the, the notion that we can do it in the other direction, like, you know, we're using chemicals and chemistry and physics to cool down the air in your house. Like it's, it's, it's not that far a leap to start to look at the, you know, sort of the chemistry and the mechanics of, okay, well, how do we just pull carbon out of the air? Yeah. Um, so you're, you're kind of, I can't say I understand any of the sort of chemical, like really functionally what's happening, uh-huh. but, but I think the idea of like, just trying to chase down the extent to which like, this is an engineering, if you take a, a balloon full of air and then you put <laughs> it in the thing over here and like a brick comes out the other side, y- you know, it's yeah. easy to envision sort of that way. And that's not, you know, impossible. So, um, so if you think about just like the geological history, um, we had uh, previous geological eras where a lot of life, whether they were dinosaurs or um, uh, trees, uh, ancient trees, ancient plants, um, that were caught underneath um, some sort of geological change, whether it was uh, a giant glacier going over it or water moving in where it hadn't been before or something like that. And the, this organic matter got trapped underground for a long time and uh, under deep pressure, it turned into uh, what ultimately became petroleum. And so we are now taking that uh, carbon that is trapped in that sort of stable form. We've been pulling it out of uh, from underground, and then we've been moving it into a gaseous form up into the atmosphere. And that's causing the change. And then as that gets added into the carbon cycle, then that uh, carbon comes out into other ways. So it goes into uh, plants, it goes into the oceans. And that's another big aspect of this is that the oceans have been taking up a lot more carbon dioxide than they're used to. And that's why we're seeing problems like ocean acidification and um, warming temperatures and uh, coral reef die off and so on. So it's really just about where is the carbon located? so it's it's not it's not that carbon's bad it's just it's in the wrong place or it's in the wrong place for uh an environment that is conducive to human life because we've only been around for a couple hundred thousand years and uh the earth has gone through several major major changes in terms of the composition of gases in the atmosphere uh whether 
whether that uh, that atmosphere is more conducive to um, proliferation of bacteria or smaller animals or giant animals like dinosaurs and giant insects and that sort of thing when they were they had a much more oxygen rich environment. Um, all that stuff is constantly in flux. And so for us, it's now a matter of we got to keep it at a level that's good for us because we're the ones here right now. Which is kind of like running the air condition, it's exactly air conditioning it. in your house. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, to an extent, it's, you know, like, except we have hit this scale. It goes back to what I was saying about the size of the problem. Like, I think it's just hard to get your head around the idea of, you know, we need an AC unit for the earth. Yeah. Well, well maybe that, that's, that's exactly right. Maybe we should um, kind of talk about some of the different ways that can be used to move yeah. there's a before we hop on there cycle. real quick there's a yeah absolutely uh, i want to share an a bbc special called the power of the planet that came out probably 10 or 12 years ago it, it's not super recent but it was the first time that i saw anything uh on any of the like educational channels on tv that really addressed geological time for our planet uh and it was a series it was the first time that i felt like i had some mm -hmm. shift in my head where i understood earth as like a being and that having a lifespan and like changing time periods because it it addressed uh instead of a lot yeah. of the nature shows are more about life on earth now uh, or life on earth before and this was very specifically the episodes were volcanoes atmosphere ice oceans and space and so very much addressed all these things it it touched on climate change it wasn't like a climate change series but it was very interesting to see those periods that you were just talking about the geological periods and, and the changes in the atmosphere over time and how that drove what exists on the planet uh, more so than than the creatures drove it and now we're at a point where there's a little bit of a reversal we've got a little stranglehold on on that control like you said and, yeah uh, we got to take responsibility for it there and and it is very finely tuned uh, that's, that's the thing that, um, so my, th this is sort of a weird background for me, but when I was in college, uh, I had grown up like politically pretty conservative and I was actually running the college Republicans my sophomore year in school. And I hosted an event on campus that was called think you're <laughs> causing global warming. Think again. And the, the poster for it was like a cartoon polar bear sitting on a tropical Island, drinking a Mai Tai. And we had some guy come in from some think tank and talk about uh, how, well, the, humans aren't actually contributing that much carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So how can we possibly be having an effect on this? It could be caused by uh, global warming is probably happening, but it could be caused by other stuff. And then as I uh, uh, matured and read more, um, I really learned like it, it actually does make a significant difference to change the atmospheric carbon concentration by just a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. Um, so today it's at um, 410 parts per million um, of, of all of the molecules in the air. Carbon dioxide makes up 410 parts per million molecules. And uh, before the Industrial Revolution, it was at 300. When uh, you, you, you guys and I are probably all around the same age, um, when we were kids, hmm. uh, it was around 350. Yeah. So it has changed a lot uh, in, in our lifetimes. Um, mm -hmm. And that's actually having like a big effect. And so it's not so much that the the effect is is noticeable now, um, but not huge. The the fear is that if we continue on this accelerating trend of putting more and more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we will reach a point where 
it gets so warm because as these gases are up in the air, it's um, uh, trapping uh, photons from the sun and they're bouncing back and forth between the upper atmosphere and the earth itself. And as it gets so warm, we're going to release, we're going to cause melting of glaciers, of course, which would raise sea level and also cause melting of permafrost in um, northern Canada mm. and Siberia. And that's the one that's really scary to me because there are mm -hmm. large uh, deposits of methane trapped underneath that ice uh, in the form of tundra uh, often. So just grass and this organic matter as it gets exposed to air is going to decompose and turn into methane. And methane is 25 times more potent mm. than carbon dioxide in terms of warming potential. And so the fear is that we get into a runaway feedback loop where it gets so warm that this ice starts melting and releases all this methane. And then that makes it warmer. And then we can't control it anymore. So that's why it's urgent that we begin doing something now as opposed to waiting for when it gets really, really bad. So then, so what can we, what technologically, mm -hmm. you know, in an engineering capacity, yeah. what, what are we able to do? Right. I mean, I've, you know, I've seen articles where it's like, here are the five dominant ways to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mm. couldn't run them off off the top of my head at this point. So uh, at Nori, we mm. tend to categorize them into three different buckets. There are ecological methods, there are uh, technological methods, and then there are hybrid approaches that combine the two. So on the ecological side, there are uh, some major, major ones like uh, planting trees or afforestation is a, is a big one. But uh, one of the caveats or trade-offs to that is that in order to plant enough trees to take up all of the carbon that we need to, we would lose arable land and we wouldn't be able to mm -hmm. feed our population. So that's not the perfect solution, but trees are definitely a part of it. Then there's uh, soil sequestration. So uh, when farmers change farming practices to uh, from instead of conventional agriculture, which is really only a thing as of the last hundred years or so, um, where they're uh, using a lot of uh, artificially produced fertilizer. They're plowing their land intensively. They're growing single crops. So uh, like in the U.S., it's a lot of corn and soy and wheat. And they're, they're using this fertilizer to um, build up their yields, and they have to use more and more every year. And that's causing soil erosion, uh, which is another serious <clears throat> environmental issue. And if they change their practices to uh, reduce the amount that they till or plow the land and they plant cover crops in between their rows. Um, so these would be small, uh, small crops that they're not really going to harvest for food per se, but they want them there because they um, the root systems that those cover crops put out help uh, feed into the actual crops that they're trying to harvest. And then they do complex crop rotations. So they're moving around from one field to the next, uh, what they're growing. So they might not, so they, they wouldn't grow wheat in the same plot year over year. Turns out that by doing, by making these changes, you use less fertilizer, which is great because one, it's very expensive for farmers. And two, uh, the manufacturing uh, production process of fertilizer is very carbon intensive. Um, it takes a lot of energy to do so. And, uh, especially when we're dealing with agriculture near coastlines, there's a lot of uh, waste runoff. So all of this extra phosphorus and nitrogen that we're putting in the ground is running off into the, the water systems. And that's really impacting and hurting the ecological um, 
uh, or the ecosystems in those coasts. So by switching to this these practices, which is collectively called regenerative agriculture, farmers can start putting more carbon in their soil and over time increase their overall crop yields. So that's that's a big one. Uh, and that's actually what we're focusing on initially at Nori. Um, so there's a lot of great potential there uh, to grow more food, grow more nutritious food, and at the same time, put carbon away. Then uh, the one of the last big ones on the ecological side kind of falls under a banner called blue carbon. Um, so this is stuff that's involving uh, oceans and uh, water. So mangroves are a big one. So planting mangroves and um, preserving existing mangroves are, are huge carbon sinks uh, near coasts. And then kelp is uh, it's being researched and there's not a whole lot of practical experimentation happening yet, but there's a lot of potential because kelp is very, very easy hmm. to grow. You can grow it pretty much anywhere on earth. You just need rope and some water. And through photosynthesis, you're pulling CO2 out. And uh, it also has a lot of other uses. We can make biofuels out of it. We can feed fish for fish farming out of it. And uh, that's actually why we named our company Nori, uh, is because uh, it's Japanese for seaweed. That's Those are the, the big ones on the ecological side. Then the, well, let me, let me put some scale to this. So globally... I, I mentioned that we're at 410 parts per million of, of CO2, and the goal needs to be to get it back to 300. And if you look at how much greenhouse gas we're emitting every year globally, it's somewhere between 40 to 50 billion tons, uh, metric tons of CO2 equivalent per year. Um, so let's just say 50 billion tons. And these ecological methods, um, it, you can store probably at maximum potential a billion tons a year in soils in the U.S. alone. When you look at it globally, mm -hmm. it's probably more like mm -hmm. eight, 8 to 10 billion if, if mm -hmm. everyone everywhere were doing this. So we're, we're, we're not going to achieve 100% potential, but, but it's there. Uh, afforestation could do um, maybe four or five billion. Uh, the blue carbon stuff could do another four to five or, or more potentially. So we're looking at a maximum potential from the ecological methods of like 25 to 30 billion tons of mm -hmm. CO2 equivalent per year. So we're still short on being able to not only right. uh, get our total emissions down to zero, but we have a carbon debt to pay down. So we need to go beyond that. So that's why I'm very interested in the technological methods that are that sort of exist today, um, but they're early stage. So the big one here is direct air capture. Direct air capture is uh, a process whereby you uh, pull in air from the atmosphere and then you separate out the CO2 from the other gases, which is very difficult because, as we just said, there are only 410 parts per million molecules that are just CO2. Um, so they separate out that CO2 and it's, it's somewhat energy intensive to do so. Uh, so it requires having access to good, clean, renewable energy uh, for this to be like net carbon removal. And then these there are a number of different startup companies around the world that are doing this. Uh, Climeworks in Switzerland, Carbon Engineering in British Columbia, Global Thermostat in California, to name a few. And they, they get the CO2, and then they can either sell it to manufacturers who want to use it to build products. And there are companies already today that make plastics out of this, or um, there's research going into making tennis shoes. I think Nike's interested in that. IKEA is interested in those plastics. 
or you can inject the CO2 into underground rock formations, uh, mostly basalt rock, where the CO2 will mineralize and turn into rock itself. And that's a very, very, very stable form of that CO2. So that's a, a, a kind of burgeoning industry. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second um, because there's more to say about that. Uh, another big one on the industrial technological side is putting CO2 in construction materials. So imagine all mm -hmm. of the real estate in Manhattan today. Like that, That's a lot. There are a lot of buildings there. That's how much Ooh, wow. is being built around the world every 30 days. So if we could put carbon in those materials, we could embed a lot that way. There are different approaches people take to this. Uh, there are carbon negative cements, um, and there are a lot of different approaches to how to even make carbon negative cement. Uh, there are companies experimenting with using mycelium, so fungi or mushrooms, to make manufacturing uh, materials. Uh, and then a really cool and exciting thing is called cross-laminated timber. So this is uh, cross-laminated timber is uh, like super plywood. Uh, there are you grow sustainably harvested trees, and then you get the wooden planks, and then you um, form them at uh, a crosshatch, so ninety degree angles, and then you use a, a very good adhesive and a hydraulic press, and you press this down. Uh, the, and you get these giant wooden beams that are incredibly strong. They're basically fireproof and they are, um, uh, they're, and they're beautiful too, because it's, this is a very good alternative to steel, which has to use a lot of energy to create steel. So there are, um, there are companies that are manufacturing this and then architects designing buildings that are basically wooden skyscrapers. And, that's that's going to be a, a really cool thing to go forward with because not only are they uh, a, a good way to lock up mm -hmm. a, a lot of carbon in the building, but they're <laughs> just beautiful, and you you feel better inside uh, inside a, a building like that. And the cool thing is the companies that make these uh, have to manufacture it in a factory, and so you can get most of the framing for a building done inside the factory. So then, when it gets shipped to the construction site, you're just kind of standing up these these frames and putting them together. So you're saving a lot on mm. um, the construction costs and the dust and debris that goes into the air around, cool. and the, the noise pollution that comes from that. So it's just an easier, better way to build buildings <clears throat> too. This is all, it's also changed the insulation game. <laughs> I watch a lot of, a lot of, uh, home construction, YouTube videos. <laughs> I don't know why it's just soothing to me to watch people build homes. Uh, so I'm all, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively <laughs> caught up on weird things like, Oh, there's this new type of insulation coming out of Switzerland. That's you know, like, of course they're good at insulation. It's cold there. Uh, so when you talk about, uh, direct air capture, yeah. I always imagine you know, like some sort of black mirror episode where I have a stationary bike in my garage that I can go ride and like a brick of something that I can sell comes out the other side. Uh -huh. And I'm thus contributing, although because incentivized by money, you know, I'm contributing to the effort to remove carbon from the air. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. In terms of energy, like the energy required to do that now, like how far off of sort of self-contained carbon removal units are we? I, I really don't understand how much you need um, like power plant sized mm -hmm. scale to do anything functional with that technology. Right now. Those, those different companies that I mentioned are taking different approaches to that. So carbon engineering in British Columbia is th their business model is they want to be developing carbon neutral fuels. So if we're going to, our fuels are based off of, um, are based off of carbon. And, uh, if we're taking that carbon from the air, instead of taking it from the ground, then we're at least neutral, uh, in that respect, they take a very large scale industrial approach. Like they have a big, big plant that, um, that does this. Then there are the smaller, more modular approaches, and that's what Climeworks is doing. Climeworks wants to put like a direct air capture uh, unit on top of buildings and and have that get access to uh, um, good, cheap, clean energy and run it at a small scale. And they sort of think there was a really, really good article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago um, that was profiling Climeworks that was talking about how they sort of look at it like uh, it, the way car manufacturers do. Like they've got their prototypes working and now they need to figure out how to scale up the manufacturing process uh, for these smaller units. So it really just depends. And, um, and I think that as more people invest more money and there's more incentive to remove CO2 from the air, that there will be more interesting innovations coming out of that space. And I wanted to come back to direct air capture uh, when I mentioned it earlier, because so we talked about about, say, 30 billion tons that ecological methods can soak up, but the rest needs to be picked up by uh, industrial methods. If you look around the world and you think about the existing industries today, who in particular has uh, access to lots of energy, enormous cash reserves, the best and most talented engineering talent, and uh, uh, decades of experience dealing with um, uh, combustible chemicals in, in high-pressure situations? Oil and gas industry. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So exactly. that's who's right. going to have to solve. Yes, man. Yeah. That's who's going to have to scale up to build this. Um, I saw a great interview with um, a guy who works for a, an investment bank that is just kind of for the energy industry. And he was he coined the term that I love mm. called atmospheric services. And he was saying that the oil and gas industry needs to right. be moving into the atmospheric services industry. This is to contrast with ecosystem services, which is commonly thrown around these ecological methods, that the, um, the, these companies are the ones that need to do it. And recently, Chevron and Occidental Petroleum just make, mm -hmm. made a big investment in carbon engineering. These companies see the writing on the wall. Like they're, and they're, they're not... Um, uh, they're not malicious people yeah. who who run these businesses, and they're kind of sort of trapped where they are. Like when you have a giant multinational company with hundreds of thousands of people on um, as part of your labor force, and you have these just regular ongoing expenses, mm -hmm. and you're a publicly traded company in mm -hmm. many different countries, like you just have obligations. Yeah. Uh, for financial delivery that are just on autopilot. Like you, yep. you can't just, they can't just do it. And also they're providing a product that we all right. want and use. Even if we, 
even if we say that we don't want it, we still use fuels. We still use energy. So they're not they're not bad or evil um, mm-hmm. necessarily. Now there are, there of course have been issues of um, cover ups of. Uh, research that was pointing towards these um, climatic and global warming issues mm-hmm. and that that shouldn't be forgotten but like they have to be part of the solution going forward uh, so yeah. I, I'm really really interested and keen to get the oil and gas industry moving into direct air capture as soon as possible yeah, so this was an awesome you've given a really great summary of uh, of a lot of the options the big picture options that are available and the ones that people really I think need to be aware of and and understand so i'm curious so all of those one of the pieces that predicates them predicates their success in our current uh economic structure is that they have to be producing something that allows them to make money um in in the farming example uh potentially it's healthier crops better crop yield um, although that one can be questionable, right? Because there's there's it's difficult to transition from the type of farming we do now to that type of farming. But um, with some of the technological examples, you were saying companies are trying to make uh, fuels, right? Capturing carbon and making a yeah. uh, sustainable uh, carbon-based fuel. So in those scenarios, that makes a lot of sense to people and makes a lot of sense to me, right? If I can create a product by by doing something that costs money, it costs money for me to go capture and get those get 50 of the 410 parts per million of co2 out of the atmosphere and make a product that makes sense but that economic incentive doesn't really exist at scale for anyone i don't think yet so where does nori nope. fit to either augment that or to kickstart that or to offset it um how does that play in and where do you start to drive how do we get that economic incentive to play faster, I guess, is the question. So this is where we segue into the <laughs> economics part of this episode. Um, yeah, you're, you're totally right. The incentive doesn't exist uh, at a large enough scale yet. Um, imagine if, uh, and we'll just work backwards from this. Imagine if there was a scenario where a company that was doing direct air capture was getting paid, I don't know, say $30 for every ton of CO2 they removed. And then they also sold that ton of CO2 to a mm. plastics manufacturer who used it to uh, build, you know, or just make some like injection molding mm-hmm. plastic for all sorts of materials. So they were, and then they're getting maybe, I don't know, uh, $15 a ton or $80 a ton. Who, who knows what the number is um, for that? So by getting paid for the service of removing that CO2 from the atmosphere, they're just mm-hmm. increasing their margin on what that product is. That's a world where more and more entrepreneurs and existing businesses invest in methods that improve mm-hmm. and bring down the cost of mm-hmm. capturing CO2 from the air. So that's the that's the outcome that we want to see. So we want to see uh, people getting paid money for that. So then we have to ask who's going to pay for that and how where is that money going to come from? Well, it turns out that there are lots and lots of different way, uh, sources of demand for that. But right now, they're very, very disorganized and they're not easily connected to this. And as you guys were pointing out earlier, that 
CO2 is an odorless, colorless, uh, invisible gas to us. We don't see it. We have to be able to measure it in certain ways. And that measurement process, uh, especially among all those different ecological methods I was talking about, mm -hmm. turns out to be a real challenge. It is it is quite difficult to know how much carbon is moving from the air into the ground. So because these problems exist, uh, that's, those have been big enough barriers to entry that uh, that have prevented uh, this these sorts of transactions from growing and taking place. Um, that's why we don't see big companies or governments or or even individuals just all over the place deciding to pay. You know what? I really do want to pay for removing CO2 from the air. So that's that's what we're trying to do at Nori. And the way that our market works is we work with what we're calling suppliers. So these are people who remove CO2 through any mm -hmm. number of those different means that I mentioned. Um, we're but we also at Nori, we have to work with uh, the scientific community to develop standards for measurement and mm -hmm. accounting and verification so that so that it is trustworthy. And then someone can remove CO2 and then it gets verified by an independent third party verifier. And then our market, which is a, a, a software system, issues to them a carbon removal certificate. And each certificate represents one metric ton of CO2 removed. They can then sell that certificate to a buyer who wants to buy it for a, a few potential different reasons. And when the buyer buys it, they're paying them with our Nori token. Mm -hmm. So this is a blockchain-based uh, uh, market. And the, the Nori token always purchases one ton of CO2. So the, the supplier receives that Nori token and the buyer receives that carbon removal certificate, the CRC. And the CRC then is immediately retired. That's kind of using the, mm -hmm. the language of carbon markets. Retired means that it cannot be resold. And then the, the supplier receives the Nori token and then they can choose to resell that for cash or Bitcoin or, or whatever. And then um, it just circulates around in the economy. That means that the the Nori token is going to be bought and rebought by buyers who want to use them for paying for carbon removal. Mm -hmm. It's like a coupon or a gift card <laughs> uh, for for carbon removal. And when we look at the way that the crypto markets work, the that means that you're going to get people who are buying these tokens because they think it's a good investment, and you're going to get people who are buying these tokens because they want to use them for. Mm -hmm. uh, paying for removing CO2. Our hope is that the price of the Nori token is then seen as like a global mm -hmm. reference price for carbon dioxide, sort of like um, the Brent crude oil or the West Texas Intermediate. Like when people talk about, oh, what's the price of oil today? Well, they have to go look at these mm -hmm. uh, price references. These are these are things that um, commodities traders trade um, so that that's how we know where the price is coming from. And that's what we want the Nori token to be, because if if we're enabling price discovery, true price discovery, where it's showing the real value that people place on removing CO2, then that's going to be useful in so many more cases than just actually paying for removal. Because 
if you're a policymaker, you're trying to fit right now, you're trying to figure out what is the true cost of carbon. If you are a corporation, you have accountants working on mm-hmm. uh, figuring out how do we know how much the carbon we emit costs? Because we know that there's going to be like regulatory uh, rules coming down the pike, or we need to deal with this cost somehow, but we don't know how to value it. Um, and and that's that's the the benefit that you can get from using so this token-based I've model. A bunch of questions that just came out from that. It was a really good explanation. And I love how uh interesting and then also complicated things get when you layer in sort of i don't want to just say crypto economics but mm-hmm. sort of these alternate non-dollar based uh economic incentives but how i'm curious how this all compares to uh actual trash removal in the world right now um because as as you've been talking i've been wondering okay well what are the economics of the trash that i take out to the alley every day and it gets picked up someone's paid to do that it's a municipal mm-hmm. service but i think our city pays a company to do it so then it means that there it must at least be making some money maybe it's subsidized by taxes but then i started thinking as you were talking there my thought as you started to talk about the efficiency or not the efficiency the uh the the understanding and the like the accuracy of a real time market value that you'll get from your your uh from the nori token regarding carbon i was wondering if then does this same application should it get applied to other things like regular trash removal and then there's like a market price that allows us to optimize that stuff yes yes uh i uh get a lot of uh like joking flack from my colleagues at nori when i go around saying right. yes we should tokenize everything <laughs> we should be build- we should be building price discovery markets for everything and uh, the world would be a far more efficient we place say that sometimes we too about so. stuff and i always feel silly but, when i say it but it it seems to be where i keep concluding with stuff to what extent it's for that to map effectively do we have to like, does it have to exist on the device in your backyard level where it's like, because you can see how the 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 pickup mechanism that we already have set for like, you know, visceral garbage, you know, in your kitchen trash. Like, you can also <laughs> see how if you also put out your brick of carbon, whatever production out of your unit in the back, where into this collection system that exists already, they are instead taking that and going, I'm going to put it over here and do this other thing with it where we're getting benefit out of that. So we're actually going to reduce your price by the amount of whatever you're doing here. That could also just look like you pay for trash services with Nori token and the extent to which you're able to generate that token by doing X, Y, and Z other things in your life offsets Mm -hmm. the fact that right now I'm paying a, you know, a sanitation bill every month, you know, to the city basically. That's what it goes up. Yeah. Well, that goes back to what, I was saying earlier that it it should just be that for every ton of CO2 you emit, you should pay for cleaning up another ton. And if you are directly responsible for cleaning up your own CO2, so is that your is is that the current uh, like economic incentive that backs a lot of what you're hoping will happen? Is that the world will recognize that we just need to have a sanitation service to clean up carbon, whether you like it or not this has to be implemented. And so that will kind of drive the purchase and the, the, the costs there or cover the costs. That's, that's sort of the underlying principle behind it. And that was 
like mm-hmm. that that's just been my hunch for a few years now that 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 is the case right. but you can't build a business model off of that and investors won't give you money uh based on just that so what we're uh going to market what our go-to-market stri- well let me tell you our two-phase or, or maybe multi-phase approach uh, what we're doing now and then what i want us to mm-hmm. see uh move into in the future so today we're a b2b company uh our our potential customers are corporations who are either doing one of two things um they are the the most obvious one is corporations that are trying to offset their emissions in some way uh and there are companies that are doing this entirely voluntarily already um, because they're recognizing that consumers prefer Mm -hmm. brands that do this if you a a typical millennial consumer wants to know the narrative story behind uh, Mm -hmm. the products that they're and services that they're buying and as companies are seeing that, um, there's a growing body of evidence that companies that invest in these sorts of things mm-hmm. are more profitable than companies that don't. And and that's that's gaining headway. Um, there's more financial analysis showing it. Um, but correlation isn't causation, and there's not definitive proof for that yet. But that that's growing, and it, and it will grow. Uh, but there are also our, our, our more relevant go-to-market strategy is... I, I said that we're our first methodology that we're supporting is this uh, these agricultural regenerative ag soil practices, and so we're working with food producers. These are the the big food producer companies that uh, that that like oh, these big conglomerates that own all <laughs> mm-hmm. of the the food companies that and food brands that we know that they're behind all of it. So companies like General Mills and Danone and Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia and others have been putting millions of dollars and lots of time into trying to develop better standards for measuring and verifying how much carbon is going in the soils of their farmers. The way that it works is like these these food producers don't own the farms. They're um, they're part of their supply chain, but they're they're recognizing that. There's a future. There's a potential future where we can't grow crops anymore mm-hmm. um, because of massive soil erosion. Because of these practice, those these conventional practices, it's killing the soil. There, so the the most apocalyptic estimates uh, believe that we have maybe sixty mm-hmm. to seventy wow. harvests left uh, of of being able to grow food to feed the world. So they they know that this is a problem, and for them. They just want mm-hmm. to invest in their supply chain and ensure that they're going to have mm-hmm. access to high quality crops in the future. So they they want to mm-hmm. see carbon sequestration in soils because it's good for their business. And so that's yeah. how we're that's where we're really placing most of our efforts right now is trying to develop deals with these companies. And it's beneficial for us because they can also bring they can bring supply and demand into our market. And that's how standing up a two sided mm-hmm. market is very difficult. You have to have both supply and demand simultaneously. And with with these food yeah. producers, um, <laughs> that there's great potential there because they bring both. So that's that's how we can get things going. And then we can get like a, a price established on this token. And then that starts creating an incentive for more and more people to join. And then we'll add more methodologies, um, ecological and industrial, going forward. But the long-term vision, uh, and I mentioned that my background is software, so I think about mm-hmm. things from a like software scalability perspective. When you compare, 
what Nori's doing to the existing carbon markets, the carbon markets that exist today, it, it it's like the equivalent of comparing high frequency trading in Wall Street today to <laughs> right. like physically printing out ticker tape uh, in the 1920s. Right. Um, that's how carbon markets work today is like the 1920s and in the stock market. And we are like the 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 more modern digital trading. So if it if everything is successful and we're able to get to a point where there is a lot of inventory of CRCs for sale, and we have this token, this digital instrument that can be used to pay for those CRCs, then what we're talking about is a simple, mm-hmm. we call it API for reversing <laughs> climate change. We can plug in this market to any sort of application that you can think of. So imagine you take an Uber or Lyft ride, and at the end of the ride, you get asked, mm-hmm. Hey, do you want this to be made carbon neutral or even carbon negative, yeah. um, courtesy of McDonald's? And you say, sure. And McDonald's plays a little ad. They get associated with uh, environmental cleanup in your mind. So they're getting positive marketing from it. You get a clear conscience because your ride was made carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. And all of that happened automatically and invisibly in the background using our financial infrastructure. And that's mm-hmm. how we will scale this thing up. That's how we'll, it's going to be microtransactions. Um, you could be playing a mobile game and every in-app purchase goes towards uh, right. purchasing a portion of a carbon removal certificate or yeah. the same transaction. It's happening yeah, already. It the, a lot of the hubless scooter companies report like how much carbon you saved by having that ride not be That's a car. right. It's interesting. And so, and so think of it like... Um, mm-hmm. When Apple introduced the iPhone, there was no app store, right? The, like Developers couldn't write apps for it. They didn't release the SDK until a couple of years later. And when they launched the iPhone SDK, they said, okay, we don't know exactly what you're going to build, but we think it's going to be really cool. And then it turns out like 10 years later that there are billions upon billions of dollars transacting through the app store. Uh, people have made the most creative and interesting apps that no one ha- would have ever thought of initially uh, when the app store was launched. And you can think of it like we want to do the same thing. We want to create a space where I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what uh, crazy, awesome, interesting mm-hmm. ideas people are going to have for incorporating carbon removal into new economic models and incentive structures and games and everything like that. But if if they have the tools to do so, then and they can make money off of doing so, mm-hmm. then they will. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the promise of crypto economics, right? Is that we can tie software into all all transactions, all, all, all of existence, which is super exciting. If you're coming from a position where you see the effect that software has really had on stuff like that. So this we're, we're running up on time a little bit, but I want to hit the last because this segues really nicely into uh, what I had originally asked you about, which is the, there's, there's the component now that I think is like you said, multiple times so far is really important how do we capture the data and what is the opportunity for the data there? And then almost like there's, there's, you hear so much about how much information is what's worth money now uh, in businesses, mm-hmm. especially technology businesses. And is there, is there intrinsic value in just knowing uh, what the CO2 composition is of the atmosphere at every, every square foot of a, of a city or in the soil or in the ocean and what opportunities do you see there and what struggles and kind of where are you with figuring out that tech or where are your partners with that? Yeah. Um, 
we take a very open source and transparent philosophy at Nori. I believe very strongly in uh, publishing uh, as much data as we can um, so that other people can find interesting ways mm-hmm. to use it. When it comes to the agricultural methods, farmers are very particular about what data is made publicly hmm. available. Um, and it took me a long time to wrap my head around this because I don't have a farming background. But if you are a, uh, a corn farmer uh, in the corn belt, and then not only are you a corn farmer, but all of your neighbors <laughs> are corn farmers, and you're basically competing with all of your neighbors. Right. And so any data that shows that by doing a, a slightly different um, fertilizer method or tilling at a different time or, or any, any of these other practices, any data that you have that proves that uh, you were more efficient than your neighbors mm-hmm. is that's like proprietary right. trade secrets. So you don't want that information getting out publicly. That said, it's very important for us at Nori that the the data that is collected in order to uh, estimate how much carbon is in the soil and and verify that be credible because that's that's the most important thing of what we're selling right. is credibility in, in that this is removed. So. There's a fine balance to be struck there uh, when it comes to that. So the way that farmers work, like we have pilots underway with farmers across the U.S. right now. And the way that it works is we collect uh, all sorts of cropping practice data from them, like uh, what they planted, when they planted, where exactly their fields are located, the kinds of fertilizer they used, when it was applied, and so on. That data comes into us, and then it gets run through our baseline generator partners at Colorado State University called Comet Farm. Comet Farm is a a model that takes in information from all sorts of models, um, including stuff from the United States Department of Agriculture. And they're able to take in all sorts of weather data and imagery data and um, sensor data. They're, they have a network of soil sampling sites around the country. And then with your cropping practice data, they're able to come back and say, okay, based on every everything that we know today, this is how much carbon we believe is going into your soil when you change these practices. And it turns out that that's actually the best that can be done. You can't just, uh, it's, it's prohibitively expensive to uh, measure mm-hmm carbon directly. And even then, there are still wide bands of estimation Mm -hmm. error. Um, So modeling is really the best Mm -hmm. approach for this. But we have to ensure to the farmers that their like actual cropping practice data stays confidential. So we'll be publishing things on the blockchain like uh, where it was removed, who removed it, when it happened, who verified it, how it was verified, to what standards was mm-hmm. it verified, and that sort of thing, but also keeping their cropping right. practice data private. But the cool thing is that even if their data about the practices are private, it feeds into the model and it improves the overall quality of the model. So everyone benefits from that. So from the um, from the modeler's mm-hmm. perspective, they're really excited about this because we're now finally bringing in like truly verified, credible right. data that's going to increase the quality of that. When we talk about other methodologies in the future, which we haven't put a whole lot of mm-hmm. thought into yet because we're so focused on this one, but Things like direct air capture should be much more simple to just measure like stuff from a sensor. Mm-hmm. But there could be all sorts of information that might be public, might be private around uh, where is it best to be physically located mm-hmm. for these machines um, because they have access to energy or or, or other factors. Um, I I would very much like to 
as much as possible, push that data to be public so that others can mm-hmm. analyze it. And it's stored on the blockchain, uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. So it's it's out there. People can develop their own applications around using that data because it's just, mm-hmm. it's just public. So I don't really know what people might do with that, but I, I want to be supportive of uh, making yeah. it available. Well, and I think even trying to have open data like that falls in line with kind of everything else, which is maybe really the place to wrap up. And it's kind of the same place as when I was talking about your podcast, but also just the mission with the project and everything, which is like, uh, you have to appreciate the audacity of the sort of long-term goal and the idea of like, well, you just broke down how we're actually doing this, but it is all still above all guided by the fact of like, yeah, this has to become an engineering (laughs) problem, but if it does, (laughs) then we can win it. We know because like we've sent people to the moon and that's pretty hard to do also. So, you know, (laughs) but uh, thanks for, you know, coming on to talk about some really great explanations. You simplified a lot of the stuff that's, that's really complicated. So, Nori is certainly a lot clearer for me. Yeah, no, definitely. Good <laughs> stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. That, that was fun. I really like getting into the nitty-gritty details with people who get it. It's, it's fun. For, for sure. A problem, you know, the problem of our times. And special thanks, as always, to our backers who throw us as little as Good. a buck uh, <laughs> a month these days since we switched off of Patreon. Yeah. Uh, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com if you want to throw in over there. Thanks for hanging out uh, for another one. And thanks to uh, Paul for joining us. Thank you. Um, This is Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Paul. Take it easy, everyone. Bye.